0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, it's Kathy. Over the last few weeks, while we've all been self-isolating and practicing safe social distancing, I've been able to re-watch a bunch of movies from the 90s. And man, there are a lot of really good ones. So for this episode, we decided to take a look back at some of the big ones. Some of the game changers that were released at the end of the decade. I hope you enjoy it and maybe find something new to watch. When you look at modern history, a fascinating pattern appears when it comes to movies. It seems like every 20 or 30 years, we get an exceptionally amazing batch of films that push the craft forward and introduce movie lovers to brand new worlds and never before seen possibilities on the big screen. In 1939, it was The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and Stagecoach, all considered classics. Then in 1979, we had Apocalypse Now, Mad Max, Alien, All That Jazz, The Life of Brian, and one of my personal faves, The Jerk. Again, movies that pushed the envelope and gave new perspectives and introduced us to new faces and new voices. But once in a lifetime, we get a crop of movies so great, it feels like it will never be repeated. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the History of the 90s. On this episode, we're looking back specifically at the last year of the century, a year when filmmakers tapped into a mood of excess and uncertainty. It was the first time we heard the now-famous Y2K. And increased access to the internet gave us movies that showcased the anxieties of Gen Xers as they entered adulthood. Let's go back to 1999. But first, a quick note. There are swear words in this episode, and there will be spoilers. So if you're not up on your 90s movies, you've been warned. Surprisingly, many of the movies from the final year of the 20th century that we now consider classics didn't do very well commercially. In fact, the number one movie that year was Star Wars Phantom Menace, which pulled in $924 million worldwide, despite the fact that it outraged fans and introduced the world to the much-hated Jar Jar Binks. Since we're talking about great movies from 1999, I'm not going to say much more about Phantom Menace. It really deserves an entire episode of its own. Instead, let's first look at a movie that bombed at the box office in 1999, but has stood the test of time and has become part of our social conscience with lines like this.
1: The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club.
0: That's right, Fight Club, starring Brad Pitt and Edward Norton only ranked 39th on the list of movie earnings in 1999, pulling in $100 million worldwide. Rex Reed, a critic for the New York Observer, called it a film without a single redeeming quality, which may have to find its audience in hell. Ouch, tell us how you really feel, Rex. For those that need a recap, Fight Club is based on a little-known 1996 book by Chuck Palahniuk which follows an unnamed narrator who's stuck in a crummy job trapped by post-capitalist malaise in an apartment filled with Ikea furniture. He eventually crosses paths with Tyler Durden, a handsome, charismatic soap salesman who lives life exactly the way he wants to. Durden convinces the narrator that the only way to truly feel alive is by creating Fight Club, a secret club of men who meet in dark basements to beat the crap out of each other. The book was a commentary on a sense of growing dissatisfaction among young men.
1: You know, in the mid-90s, there was this whole sort of kind of men's movement of like return to nature and drum circles, and we have to reclaim our masculinity. That's author Brian Raftery.
0: As a culture critic, he's written for Rolling Stone, GQ, and Esquire, and recently published a book about the movies of 1999 called Best Movie Year Ever.
1: I do think there was this sort of sense of, um, you know, that, this, that, that Gen X, I guess, didn't hadn't really a lot of the people in Gen X, they didn't have a sort of defining moment and their grandfathers had fought in Vietnam and their, or, or the World War II and their fathers had fought in Vietnam or Korea. And I think there was maybe this sense of displacement among some men.
0: Even though X book touched on some relevant issues, only about 5,000 copies sold in hardcover but a copy did make its way to Laura Ziskin, the producer of Pretty Woman. She optioned the rights to the book for a mere $10,000. Ziskin initially tried to get director David O. Russell on board for the project, but after reading the book, he passed, saying he just didn't get it. Next, she approached director David Fincher, who was already known for the thriller Seven, starring Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow. That film was loved by critics and was one of the highest-earning movies of 1995. Fincher read the book Fight Club and totally related to it, and he saw it as a modern version of the classic movie The Graduate, which was also about a distressed young man pushing back against older society's expectations. Fincher brought on screenwriter Jim Oles to adapt the book into a script, Wools told Medium in 2018 that he took the gig because he thought it would be fun, but he never ever thought it would get made into a film. Brad Pitt, who was the first actor to sign on for the movie, was cast as Tyler Durden. Pitt was already a massive movie star by then, but he too felt a connection to this story about existential uncertainty. In 1999, he told Rolling Stone magazine, I'm the guy who's got everything. But once you got everything, then you're just left with yourself. It doesn't help you sleep any better, and you don't wake up any better because of it. Edward Norton, who was coming off his role in The People vs. Larry Flint, was cast opposite Pitt as the narrator. Norton and Pitt took boxing and taekwondo classes to train for the movie, and they studied tapes of UFC matches to prepare for the bare-knuckled fight scenes. Fight Club was initially set to open in July 1999, but it was postponed because of the Columbine school shootings in April of that same year. Movie executives were worried that Fight Club with its aggressive male brutality would be an easy target for critics who are quick to point to culture as the cause for Columbine. When Fight Club did finally premiere at the Venice Film Festival in September 1999, The reaction wasn't great. Brad Pitt told Mark Maron on an episode of his podcast that he and Norton made the mistake of smoking a joint before the premiere. People weren't laughing at the jokes in the film, but he and Norton, who were sitting up in the theater's balcony, couldn't stop laughing. In fact... Pitt said the guy running the festival finally got up and walked out when Helena Bonham Carter's character says the line, I haven't been effed like that since grade school.
1: I think Fight Club is a very funny movie, and I understand why people don't think it's funny and still find it horrific. I thought it was very shattering and disturbing, but also very, I I do think parts of it are hilarious, because it's kind of poking fun at all that. I mean, it's certainly, certainly, if you look at it, it, what it's saying is, this i always feel like what it's saying is yes this whole crisis of masculinity like a little it's a little bit ridiculous at the same time it's also ridiculous that we're a generation who are just obsessed with ikea couches and there's maybe there's something in the middle
0: when the movie was released worldwide in october 1999 more than one critic said it was an incitement to violence several even equated it to fascist propaganda and on her incredibly popular talk show, an appalled Rosie O'Donnell implored viewers not to see the movie. And for good measure, she gave away the film's big twist.
1: You know, it's so weird now because it's such a well-known movie. I mean, there's like, I saw a detergent ad two years ago that had like a Fight Club parody, which is hilarious. It's like, this was a movie that was really seen as subversive. And David Fincher, the director, got a lot of sort of how dare you responses around Hollywood for a while. and. I you know and I I get it. I mean I sort of I think the only movie to really compare it to, and I don't think there's similar movies at all. Is I think there was a little bit of some people felt that way about Joker, I guess last year. But I don't think even, I don't think the controversy around Joker was anywhere near as um, really dug in as the one around Fight Club. It was really it was a it was a conceived as kind of a dangerous movie.
0: Even Rupert Murdoch, the CEO of Fox, which produced and distributed the movie, hated it he was especially annoyed with the final scene. Durden and his loyal followers created the anarchist group Project Mayhem, and as part of their plan to dismantle capitalism, Durden and his space monkeys blew up a series of buildings where credit card records were held in order to create economic equilibrium. Well, one of those buildings was the 20th Century Fox Corporate Headquarters, Murdoch was furious that Fox chairman Bill Mechanic let it happen. Brian Raftery interviewed Mechanic for his book Best Movie Year Ever, and he said destroying Fox's home base was an anti-Murdoch thing. It was his F.U. Mechanic was fired from the studio in 2000, partly because of Fight Club. Despite bombing at the box office, Fight Club performed exceptionally well on DVD, selling more than 6 million copies in the first decade after its release. And more than that, it has become a cultural motherlode. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club.
1: Fight! Fight! I want you to hit me as hard as you can.
0: It spawned a video game featuring Limp Bizkit frontman Fred Durst as a character. And less than two months after its release, the movie inspired Versace's fall-winter collection. The gospel of Tyler Durden has provided us with a cultural lexicon of soundbites. Like, we're a generation of men raised by women. You're not your khakis. And the things you used to own, they now own you. Fight Club cemented its cult classic status with its quick-witted critique of late capitalist consumer culture, and it continues to spawn countless think pieces about modern masculinity and its cynical worldview. Remember I mentioned director David O. Russell passed on making Fight Club because he didn't get the book? Well, Russell has since said he obviously didn't do a good job reading it. But it's okay. Just as he turned down Fight Club, he signed on to another movie that is considered one of the greats of 1999.
1: As in people do what is most necessary to them at any given moment. Right now, what is most necessary to Saddam's troops is to put down the uprising. We can do what we want. They won't touch us.
0: Three Kings, starring George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, Ice Cube, and Spike Jones, as four American soldiers who plan a gold heist after the Gulf War during the 1991 uprisings against Saddam Hussein. The seeds of Three Kings began with director and screenwriter John Ridley, who in the early 90s was mostly writing for TV sitcoms like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Martin. He told Entertainment Weekly in 1999 that when he wrote the script that would become Three Kings, he wanted to see how fast he could write and sell a screenplay. So he came up with the most commercial and visually interesting story he could think of. It was a few years since the first Iraqi war ended and Ridley was interested in the aftereffects that Desert Storm had on the region. So he started work on a story about soldiers looking for gold in post-war Iraq. It was called The Spoils of War. Ridley amazingly wrote the script in one week and sold it in 18 days to Warner Brothers. The studio then hired David O. Russell to take a stab at developing it into a movie. Russell was coming off the success of his two indie comedies Spanking the Monkey and Flirting with Disaster... Russell spent the next 18 months rewriting Ridley's script, turning it into Three Kings. A movie that combines dark humor and frenetic action sequences while making a political statement about the ridiculousness of
1: war. It is such, like for lack of a better word, a real crackerjack action movie. The action sequences are insanely fun. It's really funny. You know, Ice Cube and George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg and Spike Jones um, are really remarkable. And I think it's, but it's it's a blast. And I don't, you know, I think it was a hard movie to market and a very hard movie to make. And that was made by Warner Brothers. You know, Warner Brothers was making a, you know, $65 million kind of anti-war black comedy with a filmmaker who'd only made a couple of indie movies before, David R. Russell.
0: It was a big risk for Warner Brothers for a couple of reasons. First, there was a chance it could upset the U.S. government because of the way it portrayed the feeling of uncertainty among soldiers who were sent to fight in a war they didn't understand. Sentiment that is evident from the very opening line of the movie.
1: Are we shooting? What? Are we shooting people or what? Are we shooting? That's what I'm asking you. What's the answer? I don't know the answer. That's what I'm trying to find out.
0: Plus, the studio was worried how it might play in Muslim American communities. So to make sure they got it right, they sent Russell to meet with a prominent Muslim leader in Los Angeles to discuss the script and take out any parts that weren't accurate. Despite the reservations, Raftery writes in his book, Best Movie Year Ever, that Warner Brothers finally agreed to Three Kings because after years of creaky output, the studio had no choice but to try something new. Commercially, Three Kings only did slightly better than Fight Club at the box office, pulling in $107 million worldwide and placing 37th on the list of movie earnings in 1999. But unlike Fight Club, critics loved Three Kings. And it's still considered one of the definitive movies about the Gulf War. Someone who didn't like the movie so much was John Ridley, the writer of the original screenplay called The Spoils of War. In that Entertainment Weekly interview in 1999, Ridley said about Russell... This is a guy who every step of the way has tried to grab credit. I never heard a word while he was shooting the movie, never saw any of the script changes, and then finally, a year later, I get a copy of the script and my name isn't even on it. Ridley did eventually receive a story by credit on the film, and Russell says the two have since made peace. I mentioned that Spike Jones was in Three Kings. He played a bewildered, gun-obsessed redneck by the name of Conrad Vig. Funny enough, he actually did the movie as a favor to his good friend, David O. Russell. 1999 was a big year for Jones. Not only did he appear in Three Kings, he also directed his own movie, which for many critics is the best film of the year.
1: Now, when you say that I can... Be somebody else. What do you mean exactly? Well, we mean exactly that. We can put you inside someone else's body for 15 minutes. Can I be anybody that I want to be? Well, you. Actually,
0: you can be John Malkovich. Being John Malkovich is a fascinating and strange take on the technology crazed and celebrity obsessed culture of the late 90s. It features an unemployed puppeteer who's taken a boring job as a filing clerk on the seven-and-a-half floor of a New York building. Employees need to crowbar open the elevator door to access the floor, which has ceilings that are so low everyone has to duck as they walk around. He eventually discovers a portal that lets him enter the mind of actor John Malkovich for 15 minutes before being dumped out in a ditch near the New Jersey Turnpike. The bizarre tale was written by Charlie Kaufman, who was an unknown screenwriter at the time. He had written for a few failed sitcoms, including Misery Loves Company, Ned and Stacy*, and the 1993 sitcom The Trouble with Larry. In between TV gigs, Kaufman started writing Being John Malkovich, which he completed by 1994. He told the LA Times in 1999 the script got a lot of attention, but nobody was interested in producing it. That is until Spike Jones got his hands on it. Jones loved it, which isn't too surprising. Jones himself is a very interesting guy. He started off as a photographer in the California punk skateboard scene of the early 90s. He eventually moved on to directing music videos and commercials. And by the time he read the script for being John Malkovich, he was an incredibly sought-after music video director. He was behind some of the most talked-about videos of the 90s, including Sabotage by Beastie Boys, Buddy Holly by Weezer, and Praise You by Fatboy Slim, which he directed and starred in. Jones did a bunch of great commercials, too, including a 1995 Nike ad in which Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras play tennis in the middle of Manhattan traffic. Jones and Kaufman spent a year together revising the script before they approached John Malkovich himself about appearing in the movie. Obviously, his involvement was the key to making this whole thing work. According to Brian's book, Best Movie Year Ever, Malkovich loved the writing and the script. But he thought there is no way anyone was going to make this movie. He was going to take a pass until he received a phone call from legendary director Francis Ford Coppola, who convinced Malkovich he should take a chance on Spike Jones. You see, Jones had connections, and he wasn't afraid to use them. At the time, he was engaged to Coppola's daughter, Sofia Coppola. She's also a writer and director and would go on to win an Academy Award for Best Screenplay for the 2004 movie Lost in Translation. Joining Malkovich in the movie were John Cusack as the greasy-haired puppeteer, along with Catherine Keener and Cameron Diaz, who took on the role of Cusack's character's sad, dumpy, animal-loving girlfriend. Brian Raftery says even though the movie was released over 20 years ago, it still feels very relevant.
1: It just feels like it's dealing with all these kind of perennial questions of who am I and how do we feel about celebrities? And, you know, could we try to pretend to be other people, which now feels just like what the Internet is every day. You know what I mean? It just feels like it kind of predicted the insanity of of turning your life over to someone else. And...
0: Even though Twitter and Instagram weren't invented yet, this movie addressed the growing feeling that the internet was changing the way we live. John Malkovich recognized this too back in 1999 when he told the New York Times, I think it's about the need to escape yourself for 15 minutes that everyone feels. But it's really about something more sinister. It's the idea that we now lead virtual lives. We live our joys and sorrows and foibles through the lives of public people. And that's even more true today, when we can step inside the lives of almost any celebrity we want through their social media accounts. Critics absolutely loved being John Malkovich, including Roger Ebert, who gave it a four-star review and called it so beautiful you feel not just admiration, but gratitude. Despite the love, it didn't have widespread appeal at the box office, coming in at 93 on the movie earnings list for 1999, with $23 million in ticket sales. It didn't help that Spike Jones, who's well known for shunning the media, did very little promotion of the movie. He canceled his news conference at the New York Film Festival, and he made only one bizarre appearance on The Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn. We can't talk about 1999 without mentioning the one movie that was an unexpected box office hit, partly because of its use of the Internet to execute incredible and brilliant marketing.
1: I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them.
0: Promotion for The Blair Witch Project actually began in 1997, two years before the movie was even released. Film students Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez came up with the idea for Blair Witch after watching a disappointing Freddy Krueger sequel. They wanted to make an old-fashioned scary movie like The Exorcist or The Shining, After putting their heads together, they created the story of a group of documentarians who go into the woods looking for the legend of the Blair Witch. The group disappears, but the video they recorded is found a year later. Blair Witch wasn't the first movie to use the found footage concept. It goes back to a 1980 thriller called Cannibal Holocaust, which also features the disappearance of a young film crew. But Myrick and Sanchez recognized that in the 90s, there was a fresh appetite for the concept, thanks to reality TV shows like Cops and The Real World. The first thing Myrick and Sanchez did was create a 10-minute teaser a demo tape that they could show to potential investors. It used black and white photos, old drawings, and some narration to tell the story of the Blair Witch, who was rumored to be responsible for dozens of deaths in the woods of Maryland. While they were raising money for the project, the 10-minute teaser ran on a TV show called Split Screen, which aired on the Independent Film Channel. There was no explanation, viewers had no idea what they were watching, no idea if it was an actual legend or a work of fiction. Meantime, Myrick and Sanchez had raised enough money to start shooting Blair Witch. Their total budget would be a mere $60,000. The first step was to hire the actors who would play the three filmmakers who get lost in the woods. They placed an ad in a theater tabloid called Backstage which stated they were looking for actors who had a knack for improvisation and an ability to work under difficult conditions. Actors who showed up at the audition were warned that if they were cast for the project, they would be dragged into the woods for seven days of hell. They were told, if you're not serious about your craft, then you're wasting your time and ours. Heather Donahue, Joshua Leonard, and Michael C. Williams, three unknown actors, were chosen for the part because of their improv skills. In case you didn't know, most of the dialogue in the movie was improvised. The actors were just given an outline of a situation, and they were told to fill in the rest. Shooting started in the fall of 1997, when the actors and crew arrived in a small Maryland town called Burkittsville, just outside of Seneca State Park. The next day, Heather, Josh, and Mike entered the woods carrying their gear and some food and started filming. To make it seem as real as possible, the movie crew tormented the actors at night by shaking their tents and playing a boombox with the creepy sounds of children crying and talking in the distance. In the morning, the actors woke up to find spooky crosses and figures made out of sticks in the woods around the tent. The whole time, they were told to stay in character and react the way they would if it was real. Go, fucking go! Oh, God! go! My at least. Oh my God, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? Even the final scene of the movie, when Heather runs into the basement of an abandoned house and sees Mike standing in a corner, was kept a secret from her until the last possible moment. The next spring, that TV show's split screen aired a second teaser for the Blair Witch Project, which this time included footage of Heather, Josh, and Mike in the woods. Viewers were urged to go to BlairWitch.com to find out more. It was brilliant. The website added to the mystery and buzz around the Blair Witch mythology. It had crime scene photos and eyewitness testimony. Again, there was no way of knowing if it was real or fake. A version of the website is still up, so go check it out and you'll see how convincing it was. The Blair Witch Project premiered at the Sundance Festival on January 23, 1999. To keep as much mystery as possible, there were no pre-screenings for the press, and instead of handing out headshots of the actors to reporters, they received just one shot featuring Heather's partially illuminated face. The midnight showing of the film was sold out. The months of online teasing had paid off. Brian Raftery writes in his book that the reaction to the film was hard to read. Some people walked out and those that remained were weirdly quiet as they watched something that was totally different than anything seen before.
1: You know, the idea of having this fake found footage movie and the cuts are so quick and the camera movement is so zigzaggy and jarring but i i remember seeing it at a screening in the summer of 99 before it came out and i really i i'm not kidding i was gripping the seat in the screening room and i walked out like into manhattan like like oh my gosh what what was that
0: i'm with brian i remember being absolutely terrified by this movie i lived in a really old house at the time and the basement had these unfinished concrete walls and I could not go down there without thinking about the final scene from the movie. I don't remember though if I thought it was real or fake, but a lot of people were convinced it was actually found footage, and the filmmakers helped that along. Between the showing at Sundance and the worldwide premiere in the summer of 1999, they paid college students to cover campuses with missing posters of the cast. An hour-long TV special called Curse of the Blair Witch, with faux-historical footage which dug into the made-up myth, aired on the Sci-Fi channel just before the movie's release date. But most importantly, the actors' IMBD pages were changed so that they were listed as deceased. That's right, if you went online to check out Heather, Mike, and Josh, you would soon find out they were dead, leading you to believe that the movie might actually be real the actors were also discouraged from doing press and they were asked to stay away from the premiere. Nothing like this had ever happened before. And as a result, Blair Witch Project became a cultural phenomenon.
1: I think that movie was also propelled so much by the internet and propelled so much by... The fact that people had spent a year and a half or so kind of speculating as to whether this was real, and the filmmakers had put out all these kind of little digital breadcrumbs for people to look at, and, you know, I think that I think there was an excitement for this, um, you know, it's funny, when you look at, there's a couple articles in 1999, like, from Time, and you'll see people say, I, I thought it was real, and I don't know why they really did. I think there was a fun thing where we all kind of convinced ourselves it was real and just kind of went along with it, because it was much more fun to think that.
0: The two young filmmakers, Dan Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez, became overnight stars. They were featured on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and within a few weeks of opening, The Blair Witch Project had earned $100 million. It was the must-see movie of the summer of 99. Time magazine called it a rite of passage, fraternity hazing, and haunted house trip rolled into 81 agitated minutes. Eventually, the actors were allowed to give interviews, making the late-night talk show rounds and appearing on the cover of Newsweek magazine. The illusion was mostly shattered by then. But remember, without social media, the way news and information spread was a lot different. There was no such thing as spoiler culture.
1: And obviously nowadays it would never happen. I mean, you know, if the Blair Witch Project came out... If it, if it arrived at Netflix at midnight tonight, at 1201 still would be like, yeah, it's fake. It's like, you know, this is not real, you know.
0: The Blair Witch Project ended up making nearly $250 million worldwide, an indie movie record at the time. It placed 14th on the list of movie earnings in 1999. Remember, the total filming budget? was $60,000, and Myrick and Sanchez made it with a handheld camcorder and a low-tech Hi8 8mm camera. Their success inspired a generation of filmmakers to pick up a camera. It didn't matter how low-tech or inexpensive the equipment was. Blair Witch spawned countless imitators and spoofs, but none did it as well. The closest was 2009's Paranormal Activity, which also used unknown actors and improvised dialogue. For that one, the characters were just regular homeowners using a surveillance camera with night vision to capture the movements of a supernatural demon inside their house. As for Blair Witch, the magic of the first movie was not able to be replicated. The direct sequel in 2000 and a third attempt in 2016 both flopped. Blair Witch wasn't the only indie movie to make it big. In fact, indies had a huge year in 1999. In addition to being John Malkovich and Blair Witch, there was also Office Space, The Limey, Magnolia, Cruel Intentions, and Sofia Coppola's directorial debut,
1: The Virgin Suicides. The, the last couple years, the 90s had had some really great films, but the studios had been a little slow to respond to kind of the excitement of the indie movies that had risen in the 90s. And it felt like in 99, you know, the big studios really kind of caught up with these, these new generations of filmmakers.
0: Another powerful indie movie in 99 was Boys Don't Cry. This was the first mainstream film to focus on a transgender man. It was based on the true story of Brandon Tina, a 21-year-old Nebraska trans man who was raped and murdered in 1993. It was directed and co-written by Kimberly Pierce, who had spent years researching the tragic life and death of Brandon. The film focuses on the final months of Brandon's life when he relocated to a small Nebraska town and began wooing 19-year-old Lana Tisdale. When it was discovered that Brandon had been assigned female at birth, Lana's two friends tracked him down and raped him. A short time later, they shot and stabbed him to death. Brian Raftery writes in his book, The Best Movie Year Ever, that the story felt deeply familiar to Pierce because a lot of her friends were transitioning from male to female at the time. And she felt she needed to find a way to tell this story. Initially, Pierce had trouble raising money for the film, because few financiers were interested in a romantic drama featuring a transgender man. For decades, mainstream films and media had portrayed transgender men and women as cross-dressing oddities that were deceitful about their identity, and in some cases, murderous villains. Pierce eventually secured $1.7 million from Heart Sharp Entertainment in Manhattan, and the search began for the actor to play Brandon. After several years of searching, actress Hilary Swank was cast in the role, which continues to be an ongoing criticism of the movie. Casting director Carrie Barden told Brian Raftery that their options for transgender performers were limited in the 90s. They simply couldn't find a transgender actor who could carry the role. Despite the controversy over casting, Raftery believes the movie succeeded in raising awareness about an issue that was in the shadows in the 90s.
1: And, I, you know, to be honest, it was the first time I really, had, you know, had had even heard the press surrounding that movie. I don't think I'd even heard the word transgender until that movie came out. And I think maybe, and I was very young and probably naive, so maybe I'm sure it's not as if it was it was invented by that movie. But I think that was a very important film and it came out, not long after, um, you know, the murder of, of Matthew Shepard, who was a young gay man here in America who was brutally killed and was on the cover of Time magazine. And I think I, I know there's some pushback toward that film, especially among younger um, viewers. And, I, and again, I totally respect that and understand it. But I think it's, it's very important to remember that movie at its time was really um, uh, compelling and inventive and really uh, meant, you know, spoke to a lot of people who maybe hadn't been listening before.
0: Brian wasn't alone. For many, Boys Don't Cry was their first introduction to a trans man. And the fact that the movie was told largely from Brandon's point of view, the audience could empathize with him and the movie was celebrated in some LGBT circles. Swang prepared for the role by spending a month changing her appearance. Each morning, she bound her breasts, placed a rolled up sock down the front of men's pants that she wore. She worked out to make her face thinner, more angular, and cut her hair short, using Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio as inspiration. She even practiced talking in a low Midwestern accent. Swank's performance in Boys Don't Cry earned her an Oscar for Best Actress. She thanked Brandon Tina in her acceptance speech, saying, "...his legacy lives on through our movie." The movie only made just over $11 million worldwide, but remains one of the most well-known pieces about a transgender man in popular culture. Nick Adams, director of transgender representation at GLAAD, an organization which tracks LGBT representation in the media, told the New York Times in 2019 the movie was a vital and high-profile correction to biased news coverage relating to trans people. If you weren't into indies or groundbreaking films, the late 90s was also a fertile period for teen movies. The music channel MTV got into the movie business in 1996 and produced films based on MTV programs, such as Beavis and Butthead do America and Jackass, the movie. But no one would have predicted that amongst the four films they released in 1999, which included Varsity Blues and 200 Cigarettes, one of them would be nominated for an Oscar. And that one is a personal favorite of Brian Raftery. It tells the story of a high school senior by the name of Tracy Flick. Some people say I'm an overachiever, but I think they're just jealous. My mom always tells me I'm different, you know, special. And if you look at all the things I've accomplished so far, I think you'd have to agree. That's right, Election. It stars a very young Reese Witherspoon as Tracy Flick and Matthew Broderick as a middle-aged teacher, Jim McAllister. And according to Brian, it is a flawless movie.
1: But I just think that movie has so much to say about gender and, and class and politics and the way America's kind of, kind of governed itself. And it does it in the most subtle ways. And it's just, it's also just a remarkable, I mean, I've never been bored rewatching Election and I had to watch a lot of these movies five or six times to so this book and Election is always kind of delightful.
0: Turns out, Brian's not alone. Barack Obama once told the movie's director, Alexander Payne, that Election is his favorite political movie, too. The movie depicts a battle for high school president between overachiever Tracy Flick, dopey football star Paul Metzler, and his frustrated sister, Tammy. Jim McAllister, the teacher in charge of overseeing the election, is so turned off by Tracy Flick's ambition and obnoxious self confidence that he interferes in the election to prevent her from winning. Election started off as an unpublished novel written in 1998 by Tom Parada, a teacher and aspiring writer. Parada told Vox in 2017 that the idea for the book was shaped by his obsession with the 1992 U.S. presidential campaign. It pitted Republican incumbent George H.W. Bush against young upstart Democrat Bill Clinton and independent billionaire Texan Ross Perot. But Parada initially had trouble selling election because publishers couldn't figure out whether to slot it as a YA book or an adult novel. So he put it aside and kept working on other projects. Eventually, though, Parada was connected with a couple of movie producers who optioned the unpublished script for $20,000. The producers sent the manuscript to indie movie director Alexander Payne, who was coming off his successful debut feature, Citizen Ruth. He loved the manuscript and quickly began working with his writing partner, Jim Taylor, to adapt it to a movie script. The end result was completely unlike any other teen movies released in 1999. Election is different. Yes, it's a dark comedy set in a high school, but it's actually satire about the American electoral process that takes direct aim at the state of political ethics and behavior. Like I said, not your typical teen movie. The Tracy Flick character became the archetype for an obnoxious know-it-all young woman. But in recent years, viewers have looked at the character a little differently.
1: I think back in 99, I think, I don't think the skeeviness of that was quite, um as clear to viewers i think people saw tracy flick as kind of this villain whereas if you look at the whole what her whole character goes through she's actually she's been really kind of um just just sort of like abandoned and and really hurt by grown-ups in a lot of her ways of her life i think she's a much more um sympathetic character now but i also think she's the best kind of um like sort of hero for a movie and and a complex movie, which is every time you start rooting for her, she does one little thing where you're like, oh, (laughs) she's also got, you know, she's also a little bit of a, a complete like ambition monster.
0: When Election was released in 1999, it was adored by critics. But like so many other movies from that era that have gone on to be classics, it didn't fare very well at the box office, pulling in just $14 million worldwide against a budget of $25 million. There are so many amazing movies from 1999. We haven't even talked about The Matrix yet, or American Pie. But sadly, we are out of time. So we've decided to do something special. We're going to make this a two-parter. So tune in next week, and we will take a look at more great movies from 1999. For now, make sure you check out the show notes for a list of some of the best movies from 1999. That should give you plenty of viewing options while you're self-isolating. You can also find a link to my guest, author Brian Raftery. His book, Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, is an excellent read and provided many of the details you heard in this episode. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the show. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. And you can always listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're new to the show, be sure to go back and check out some of our older episodes. If you have an idea for an episode, I would love to hear from you. I'm getting some really great suggestions. Pokemon, boy bands, 90s cartoons. Please keep them coming. You can reach me through Twitter at 1990s History or on Instagram and Facebook. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.